title slide has an error. My title slide has an error, so I was, I'll just jump over that one. I think I still kept it from last week and didn't update it, but the verses should be correct, hopefully. And uh, tonight we're looking at these uh, Bible lists out of Wilmington's, Harold Wilmington's compilation of Bible lists, and I've taken those and expanded on them some and added a few more verses that we can look at, so that's kind of a, a topical study. Uh, and tonight we're going to look at paradoxes all right paradoxes that's not two doctors but paradoxes as in things that are opposites of each other um, or paradoxical statements as we'd say and we're going to look at those things uh, tonight and before we open the scriptures let's pray lord again we do come before you thank you for the book that is before us and and lord we stop to thank you also that al's bible came back to him today and and lord that uh, it was returned and and Amen. We're just so grateful for that. And pray, O oh Lord, you'd continue to use it in his life as it has so many years uh, and seed it deeply in his, in his heart. Thank you for his teaching spirit. And we just ask God that you'd continue to use him and others that are in the word of God to share. And Lord, as we open up the word again tonight and we look at it, we pray you would just seed it deeply in our hearts and help us to teach others also. We ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen. In Matthew 10, verse 39, it says, He who finds his life will lose it, and he who loses his life for my sake will find it. And you see in this verse, like many verses, um, there are two paradoxical statements. And you have, first of all, the one who finds his life will lose it, and he who loses his life will find it, right? And so those are two kind of opposite statements. And just reading it on the surface doesn't seem to make a whole lot of sense. Um, when you come to John chapter 12, it also says the same thing in verse 25. He who loves his life will lose it. And he who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. There, very much strong language Jesus uses in that verse. And it's not so much he wants us to go around hating ourselves in that. But that's the, the comparison of how we ought to be looking at our life as something in in comparison to the life we lead in Christ and it's that strength of emotion that he calls for in that and again you see these paradoxical statements of finding one's life yet eventually losing it and of losing one's life and yet eventually finding it and of course Jesus expounds on this in other places Uh, for instance in Matthew 16, verse 24, <clears throat> he says this. Then Jesus said to his disciples, If anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself. And that's what's being taught here is called the denial of self and really the, the life of a surrendered life that a disciple should have. And he goes on to say, Take up his cross and follow me. For... Whoever desires to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. And again, you see that that emphasis on those things. And there Jesus uses the backdrop of the cross, the crucifixion. It was yet to come when he was, for him anyways, yet to come. And when Jesus says to take up your cross, he's not referring just to take up something that's burdensome like carrying a cross, that's often what we we talk about or say. Um, But he's really referring to the aspect of our position in Christ, to die to self. Because that's what the cross represents. It represents death. 
And it represents the shame and the suffering associated with death. And all those things that we hold dear need to be, and the, and the things we don't hold so dear, the works of the flesh, all those things need to be crucified with him if you're going to be a follower of Christ. And based on how you do that, will also base your relationship of how close you follow him, really. Um, do you count your life dear? If you do, you will lose it. If you count your life something that isn't so dear, but his life is better, then you know what? You'll gain it. And that's really what he teaches. Paul also talks about this in Romans chapter 6. And here by position, look what he says in Romans 6, 4. And there's both a theological position here and a practical aspect of how that theology plays out. And that's always important to note that faith, as we know it, and the faith and the doctrines associated with the faith should lead to good living. Or that's the practical part, right? They really should. It should make us better. And here Paul writes, Therefore we were buried with him through baptism into death. And he's talking about spirit baptism, not water baptism. We identify with Jesus Christ by spirit baptism. And we, it says that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should what? Walk in newness of life. So here, this position of dying to Christ, and, and that is a position he declares at the cross when Jesus died. He died for our sins, and he died for us. And those that receive him by faith are baptized into Christ and by the Holy Spirit, and we die with him also. And that way we can put on newness of life and walk there and do that. And he goes on to say, For if we have been united together in the likeness of his death, certainly we also shall be in the likeness of his resurrection. So here you have these paradoxical statements that Jesus says back in the Gospels. Paul builds on that. And here you have death and yet life coming out of that death, right? And then this, he says, Knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him. That's the old nature. That the body of sin might be done away with. And that is part of, um, well, then he goes on, that we should no longer be slaves of sin. And for he who has died has been freed from sin. Now, the practical aspect of that right now is that sin still is in us. It is. Um, I was looking again at those Ten Commandments this afternoon as I was doing some study and looking at things, and, and, and it's hard to get down past the first one, as I said, have no other gods before me. But, but then you go down through some of those, right? Have you ever stolen something? Have you ever lied? Have you ever coveted something? Have you committed adultery? Jesus says, if you even lust after a woman in your heart, you've committed adultery. That probably means most men are guilty, okay, um, in, in that. And so you, you go right down through that. Have you ever killed? Or have you ever wished somebody was dead? See, Jesus says, if it's in your heart, and you, you know, that's where murder arises... If you just wish that person was dead, you've murdered them. I mean, that's how bad that is, right? I mean, we have broken the law of God. Jesus Christ nailed the ordinances that were against us to his cross, positionally. Amen, for sure. And I'm glad that every single sin is nailed to the cross. And if you'll receive that gift of salvation, you're there too. The old man has been crucified. That's the position. Now the practical aspect of it is this, that we should no longer be slaves to sin. 
You see, as a sinner, unregenerate, without the Holy Spirit, we were going to by nature sin. That's what you do. Religion couldn't clean it up. You know, you couldn't by self-worth or anything else, you know, take some self-help course or all that. You can't fix sin. Only Jesus can. It has to be killed. And so we shouldn't be slaves to sin anymore, even though there's sin that reigns, that sometimes, I shouldn't say reigns in our mortal, that is in our mortal bodies. We shouldn't be slaves to sin. And then he says, for he who has died has been freed from sin. A dead man walking, and that's our position in Jesus Christ. And it should tell us that we don't live for ourselves anymore. We live for him. And then he goes on to say, now, if we died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him. That's faith, right? And so you see, again, that paradoxical statement that goes on like that. Uh, I have 2 Corinthians 6, and this too is part of that, of uh, being known and unknown, um, or being unknown and being known, and of dying and of possessing life. Paul uses these same statements. Um, I'll read starting back in verse 3 to give it context. Of 2 Corinthians 6, he says, We give no offense in anything that our ministry may not be blamed. But in all things we commend ourselves as ministers of God in much patience, in tribulations, in needs, in distresses, in stripes, in imprisonments, in tumults, in labors, in sleeplessness, in fastings, by purity, by knowledge, by long-suffering, by kindness, by the Holy Spirit, by sincere love. By the word of truth, by the power of God, by the armor of righteousness on the right hand and on the left, by honor and dishonor, by evil report and good report as deceivers and yet true. You see those, those kind of paradoxical statements there. Then he goes on to say, and as unknown yet well known, as dying and behold we live, as chastened and yet not killed. And that verse 9, I just focus on that a little bit, you have again this statement of being unknown and yet well-known. So what is Paul talking about in that whole process? And I think it's the idea of, of his ministry, his apostleship. And where Paul went, he was both well-known and unknown. But he was well-known, even if nobody here knew who Paul was, and he would walk into a place like Corinth, or you know, in the place like Berea, or Thessalonica, or Ephesus, or Athens, or all those. People might not recognize him. He didn't stand out necessarily. And he wasn't famous in those days. And I think if Paul the Apostle walked in here in our modern clothes or whatever, we wouldn't know who he was. He would just be some stranger. But God took note of him. God knew who he was. And he, he recognized that. And those who, who were, um, that fell under the scope of his ministry also knew him. And so he did become the evangelist Paul and the, the teacher Paul who poured out his life for them. He goes on and he mentions that in 2 Corinthians 4 earlier on. He says, But we have renounced the hidden things of shame, not walking in craftiness nor handling the word of God deceitfully, but by manifestation, manifestation of the truth. That means in the light, manifesting it, demonstrating it, showing it. And by the way, the truth is that way. We can be holders of the truth of the word of God and hide it. Don't do that, right? Can't take light and hide it under a bushel. It says, but by manifestation of the truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience, and look what he says, in the sight of God. 
You see, I could walk around this world and most people would not take note of me, probably, unless I really was doing something bad or, or I was famous somehow or things like that, which I'm not. I'm not famous, I, I suppose, and I don't want to do something bad and dis, bring disrepute to the Lord. But we can walk very sort of walk in this world as strangers, nobody taking note of us. But as we walk with God, he takes note of us. And we commend ourselves to his sight. And ultimately it is his sight, isn't it? He goes on in 2 Corinthians 5.11, Knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, or the fear of the Lord, we persuade men. But we are well known to God. I love that. Well known to God. Think God knows about you? If you're serving him, he sure does. He's like that. I like that. It was Adoniram Judson in Burma, a missionary there, obviously a long time ago, but he was arrested and put into a prison. He had over 30 pounds of shackles around his, around his um, legs and, and all of that, and he was despised, <laughs> and there he was. And someone asked him in the prison, what's the prospect of the heathen getting saved? And he says the prospects of the heathen getting saved are as good as the promises of God. That's optimism, isn't it? That's understanding that God takes note of your situation. And Adoniram Judson knew it wasn't him that was on display. Thankfully, through his ministry, many did get saved. Many. And in the generations after him, many got saved in Burma, in that area. I also trust are well known in your consciences. So Paul throws it back to the Corinthians and he says, you also know us. Glad for that. He spent 18 months in Corinth. They got to know him. He was teaching regularly there. Imagine sitting for 18 months under the ministry of the Apostle Paul. Wow, that would be good. I mean, exciting. Although, although maybe it wasn't. I don't know. Maybe it was hard. As he says that... Um, People said that he was weak and his speech was contemptible. <laughs> weak in bodily presence and speech contemptible. I think he probably wasn't somebody who was as eloquent as we think he was, but he sure could write things out. And I'm sure he, we know what he said too, you know, but it wasn't necessarily what the world would take note of. But he was well known. 1 Corinthians chapter 4. <clears throat> He writes here, <clears throat> excuse me, for I think that God has displayed us, the apostles, last, as men condemned to death. For we have been made a spectacle to the world, both to angels and to men. Do you think angels take note of you if you're following the Lord? Yeah. They inquire, actually, the Bible says. They kind of want to know why. And to men. He says, We are fools for Christ's sake, but you are wise in Christ. There's a paradoxical statement fools, but yet wise. We are weak, but you are strong. You are distinguished, but we are dishonored. And Paul puts himself in this camp of the cost of his ministry, the cost of being an apostle. It was not one where he was sitting in a wealthy, you know, palace somewhere. 
as some later would claim to be apostles and would find themselves in that kind of situation with everything given to them and all the money at their disposal and all that. And listen, they were despised, they were rejected, they were made fools. Why? Because it made Christians wise. It made weak Christians stronger. It made those Christians who are unknown now distinguished. And I think that's part of that process when he says about being known and yet being uh, being unknown but being well known. <clears throat> he goes on to say in 1 Corinthians 4.11 To the present hour we both hunger and thirst and we are poorly clothed and beaten and homeless and we labor working with our own hands being reviled, we bless, being persecuted, we endure. You see the contrast there? See, so, so much of that today, we could take heart to that. Because when we're reviled, we don't like it. We revile back. That's not the model of Christ, nor is it the model of, of um, Paul and others. We bless, he says. Somebody reviles you, just look at him and say, bless you. That'll get them, Right? Being persecuted, we endure. That is the truth. Much of this world is, is a world that's harsh and, and it involves sometimes some soft persecution. I think we're seeing more of that in our country now. We're seeing soft persecution against Christians and probably stronger persecution coming. What's the answer? We endure. Being defamed, we entreat. We have been made as the filth of the world, the offscoring of all things until now. He says, but I do not write these things to shame you. But as my beloved children, I warn you. For though you might have 10,000 instructors in Christ, yet you do not have many fathers. For in Christ I have begotten you through the gospel. Here's Paul, the dead man walking. And he says, yet I'm birthing you. The word begotten in that context is reference to their their believing. And he was their father in that sense, the spiritual father who brought the gospel to them. And by the way, it was the gospel that saved him, not Paul. And it's the same gospel throughout the whole scripture. There's not a gospel according to Paul and a gospel according to somebody else like Jesus or gospel according to someone in the Old Testament. You know, it's the gospel, the good news. 2 Corinthians 12, 1. It is doubtless not profitable for me to boast. I will come to visions and revelations of the Lord. And he goes on to say, I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago, whether in body I do not know, or whether out of the body I do not know, God knows. Such a one was caught up to the third heaven. And I know such a man, whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know, God knows. Now he was caught up into paradise and heard inexpressible words which it is not lawful for a man to utter. You know, that verse 4 is that sort of contradictory or paradoxical statement. It isn't contradictory, but it's words that he heard, but they're inexpressible. Have you ever thought about that? Like, that's hard, right? Um, Paul uses it elsewhere, talking about God's, um, uh, was it inexpressible gift? Is No, it's, uh, what's the term? But he uses an indescribable, indescribable gift. Same thing. You can't describe the, the Lord. And he, most likely this occurred, and it's speaking in third person, but it's most likely Paul referring to himself when he says there was such a man, right? 
Um, and he has this vision, and I believe, well, it's more than a vision because it says he was caught up into paradise. Caught up. The word caught up is the Greek word harpazo. Remember where that word's found elsewhere? It's found in 1 Thessalonians 4, and it says, They who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds. It is the Greek word harpazo, the, translated into Latin, it's rapturo. And in English, we get rapture. So he is brought up into the presence of God's abode, paradise, heaven. And he can't explain it. And he's not permitted to anyways. I think heaven is going to be so beautiful to us and so indescribable. We will not find words that could express it in the here and now. There'll probably be special words just for heaven. And Paul... If he is indeed that man, I know a man in Christ, he says. And, and it would have occurred most likely 14 years prior to this. He was on his first missionary journey. And one of the things that happened on that first missionary journey, he was stoned. That means casting stones at him and left for dead at a place called Lystra. And is there such a thing as a near-death experience? Yes, <laughs> it's in the Bible. And during that time, he saw heaven. Uh, somebody did this is not just some story he made up he was that close and by the way from to be absent from the body is to be present with the lord and i think that there's probably some and i'm just saying this because i haven't experienced it and probably nobody in this room has either there is some fine line between in the soul and spirit in the body and out of the body that close and maybe there is those that describe when they die on the table or in an accident and then are revived and having been able to see themselves and then being drawn away to something. I, I don't know if there's anything to that. It's experiential. It's outside of Scripture except for this passage is the only thing. And that should be what we take as the gospel or the word of God, I should say, um, is what this Paul writes here. He begins to, des- he can't describe it. He just says it happened. And I always find that interesting because there's people out there that will tell you they've had all these experiences and they'll tell you all about it. Paul says it was, it was just indescribable or inexplainable. Inexpressible, sorry. Inexpressible. And he says it's not lawful for a man to utter. Wow. Someday we will though. Someday we'll see it. I think, by the way, if indeed that is Paul in the first person that it, his experience um, it gave him most likely the resolve to face the trials what he would what he would eventually face later including eventually being martyred at Rome when Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 4:17 for our light affliction which is but for a moment is working in us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory Think of the backdrop to that. He had a glimpse of heaven. And he says, this world, the worst they can throw at us is, and Paul saw it all, right? The worst they can do is just a light affliction. That's it. And the weight of glory is is much heavier on that side of things. He goes on to say in 2 Corinthians 12.10, Therefore I take pleasure in infirmities 
in reproaches, in needs, in persecutions, in distresses for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Again, you have this idea of being weak and been made strong, and it's through difficulties that you take pleasure. And again, paradoxical statements, you know, and yet God uses them, and you can only really know that by experience in those things. Uh, so different things here um, having nothing yet possessing all things um, of hearing words that cannot be expressed of being strong when one is weak um, of knowing the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge now that's another one Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 3 in verse 17 and he is talking to the Ephesian believers. He says that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. By the way, I've heard people say, there's no such thing as having Jesus in your heart. Well, the Bible says you, that we might have Christ in our hearts, right? And we are. He's part of us. And what does that mean? That's the seat of emotion, the word that's used there. But that you being rooted and grounded in what? Love. See, love, that attribute of love, which is defined in many different ways, but only truly defined by God's love. And it's not something that can be easily explained. Paul goes on to say, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the width and length and depth and height to know the love of Christ, which passes knowledge. You couldn't write a book to explain the love of of God. You just couldn't. Right? You couldn't fill the ocean, you know, with ink and and take a uh, you know, every person having a quill, every scribe with a quill and going and writing, the world would not contain it, right? This you, you couldn't. That you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Filled with all the fullness of God. And again, it's best experienced over trying to explain it and that's the part of salvation that is experiential i mean sometimes i'm one of these guys that i'd rather have the outline you know and have the the verses and have that all set up but it's that really a lot of people can do that i i suppose the devil knows this book far better than any of us here doesn't mean he's saved nor does he experience the love of god but we can we can know him Know the Lord. And we certainly see that demonstrated. Um, For instance, John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. That's a sacrificial love, the agape kind of love. And it's a love that is from God to us. And he demonstrates it in Jesus Christ. He says that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life, right? Jesus later picks up on that again, and he says this, Greater love has no one than this, than to lay down one's life for his friends. That same sacrificial love that is willing to give your life for someone else. And we certainly can identify with that kind of sacrifice, because it's venerated for the most part. I mean, there's still people that don't, but, but we think of that heroic kind of love that goes out and does something by laying down their life for someone else, or for a cause, or for those things. And we understand that, especially if it's somebody motivated for their fellow man, or 
or motivated for a greater purpose than themselves, right? It's a demonstration of love. In his epistle, John also says this in 1 John 3.16, By this we know love. And the word for know is experiential, to know by experience. Because he laid down his life for us, and we also ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. That's the costly kind of love that the Christian is called to, to show and to experience as well. And to have that. Paul picks up on that in Ephesians when he says, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her. Imagine if all the husbands of the world loved their wives like that. Even if you're not an easily loved wife, right? I will say my wife is an easy wife to love. And I mean that. She's not here tonight. She might listen to this later. And I'm not just throwing that in. But she'll tell you too, it's not always easy to love her. And I would say the same thing. It's not always easy to love me. But it's worth it to love her. Because Christ loved us. And he gave himself for us. That means that brother, that sister, that spouse, that someone, that other Christian, they come before you do. That's hard. But not impossible. Psalm 103, verse 11. For as the heavens are high above the earth, so great is his mercy toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. Now, in the King James and New King James, you have so great is his mercy. And the word that is in the Hebrew there is translated mercy in a number of places in the Bible. It's also translated love. And it's the kind of mercy that is wrapped up in a, an action of love or a motivation of love. It's not just a judicial mercy. Like you come before a judge and the judge says, um, <clears throat> I'm, going to, I'm going to forget this, you know, remove it. It's a kind of mercy that's demonstrated by the judge who took your penalty. Right? And in the... ESV and other translations, it says, For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love. It's a faithful kind of mercy wrapped in love toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. Can anybody here tell me how high the heavens are above the earth? Just about the time they figure it out, those that, you know, think they know what how big it is they figure out it's bigger than that i think when i was a kid they said the expanse of the universe was somewhere around seven or eight billion light years you know which is a distance of travel of light in a year and and all that but so that was the distance of things but now looking at like things like the hubble telescope which has been around since the 1990s and other telescopes they they know that it's much bigger than that and then for a while it was like 14 billion. Now it's bigger than that. And he spanned it in his hand. He spoke it into existence. He's outside time. <clears throat> so I don't get too caught up in that. I just say, for as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love. And as far as the east is to the west, you'll never have the east meet west if you're going in opposite directions, right? It's just, it's not. It's, it's a, you know, in that plane. 
2 Corinthians 4.18. And by the way, that's that love. And I, as I go back to that real quick here, you have the, the love demonstrated, and it is immeasurable. And I mean, I don't know. There's all these words that only really are used to describe Christ and the Lord. And I'm glad for that. But yet we do see it. We see a sacrificial kind of love. Um, I remember a story of a, of a young girl who had a contagious disease and she was on her deathbed. And they'd pretty much given up hope that she would recover. And, and then her doctor, who was treating her, found out that her younger brother had had the same disease recently and had recovered. And so he said, you know, if we could take some, and they found out the blood types were the same of the, both siblings. And, and the doctor said, if we could take some blood from the younger brother and infuse it into the daughter, the antibodies will take hold and be able to fight that disease and give her, give her life. And so the parents said, oh, that's a great idea. I mean, they didn't want to see their little girl die. And the doctor went into the room and the little boy was sitting next to the bed of his sister and he went to explain what he was going to do and he said that we need some blood from you. We're going to take your blood and we're going to put your blood in her and it will save her life. He says, you okay with that? And the little boy said, sure, I'll do that. And so they got all the tubing ready and they got the you know, the, uh, the catheter and IV needle and all of that. And they began to infuse blood directly from him into his sister. And as they were doing that, the little boy who initially he was smiling, all of a sudden he, he began to pout a little bit. And he was still trying to smile. And they thought maybe he was in a lot of pain in doing that. And, and so the doctor said, are you okay? Are you in any pain? And he said, no. He says, but when am I going to die? See, he didn't get it. He just thought that he was giving all his blood to his sister and he was going to die and she would live. And see, that's that kind of sacrificial love that a child can understand and would be willing to do. I'm thankful for that. How much more the God of creation gave himself for us and loves us with a steadfast love. <clears throat> And then seeing unseen things. That's the last paradox we'll talk about tonight. There's more. There's the paradoxes of Christ's life. Those are other ones. We may do that next week. I don't know. Because there's a lot of those. Um, 2 Corinthians 4.18 says, While we do not look at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. <laughs> Think about that statement. How do you look at stuff that's not seen? For the things which are seen are temporary, but the things which are not seen are eternal. Short answer is it's faith, isn't it? Faith allows us to see things. And it's not just sort of a leap in the dark, as some would have proposed. That's what faith is. It's just leaping out in the, dark, in the darkness. No, not at all. He's given us the evidence. And actually, Hebrews 11.1 1 says, Now faith is the substance of things hoped for. It is substance. And it's the evidence of things, or the evidence of things not seen. And there is evidence. We don't trust in nothing. We trust in the living God. And he has provided as much evidence as we'll ever need. In Hebrews 11, verse 25, it says of Moses... Choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin, 
esteeming the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures in Egypt. For he looked to the reward. By the way, I have, I used to, I still am, I always love to read about ancient Egypt and look at the pictures. Remember National Geographic when you used to be able to get it? And I still, it's out there, I'm sure, but now it's all online kind of thing. But I remember the uh, National Geographic issue that came out with King Tut, right? Tutankhamun. And the golden mask that they found there in the 1920s when they um, excavated his grave, his, his tomb, and, and the amount of gold that was there. And it was just amazing. And, and you're looking at stuff that's thousands of years old, and it's, wow, you know, it's just, wow, treasure. The Egyptians had so much gold. They had so much treasure, so much wealth. And Moses was raised as an Egyptian in Pharaoh's household. And he could have just bought into any of that. But he didn't. He had eyes of faith and instead he wanted to be with the people of God. His people. And the reproach that that brought. Why? Because he looked to a greater reward. By faith he forsook Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king. For he endured as seeing him who is invisible. Is he the king of kings? If we see him through faith and by faith... He's bigger and better than any other king, isn't he? Aren't you glad for that? The seeing of the unseen. And that's faith. That's Judson in his prison saying, the heathen, the promises of the heathen getting saved, or the the prospect of the heathen getting saved is as good as the promises of God. That's the belief that you're doing what God wants and it's worth it. Because God is able. Let's pray. Lord, we are grateful for the promises that are found here and these just statements that we could read over and quickly and not give much thought to and yet lord you are there and you are the one that has shown us that we're only strong when we're weak and we only truly live when we die to self and and lord we can rejoice in times of sorrow and thank you god for that and we also thank you for your steadfast love which is so much that it cannot be measured by anything in this creation. We rest in that tonight. We rest in the person of Jesus Christ. We thank you for him. We pray in his name. Amen.